You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Great to be with you. Please open in your Bible to two places. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 will be there first, and then Luke chapter 14. Uh, Philippians 2 and Luke chapter 14. And while you're finding your way, real quick, how many of you have seen the movie already, Sound of Freedom? Anybody who's seen that? Okay, listen, not enough of you. Not even close. Listen, you've got to go see this film uh, it's, this is one of those uh, films that you see and you don't, uh, you don't, you know, just go to dinner afterwards and forget about it. It's not simply entertainment. It is, uh, I think, something that we especially uh, need to be aware of. Um, the topic or the, the uh, issue that's addressed is um, specifically um, child sex, tra- sex trafficking. Uh, we're looking at somewhere around conservatively... 2 million children, and I'm not talking about 14, 15-year-olds. I'm talking about 2 and 3 and 4-year-old little boys and little girls that are being uh, used and abused and destroyed uh, all across this nation and world. And historically, folks, you do know that the church has been at the forefront of the issue of slavery, right? And uh, so now I think we need to be aware of something that's happening right underneath our noses to a degree that I don't think many of us are aware of, and so I, I, I almost never do this. Um, in fact, you know that a while back there was a movie, Jesus Revolution, I sort of made a little bit of a mild reference to it. It, it, it sort of chronicles our movement, the Calvary Chapel movement. But uh, this you must go see, and then once you've seen it, stick around for about two minutes after the credits roll, Jim Caviezel comes back out and talks about a way in which we can get involved. And we, this is something folks that we need to we need to be aware of number one and number two we need to get involved with in a, in a significant way and so we're we're praying about how we may be able to do that corporately and congregationally and see if we can you know uh, lean into God's power and goodness and stand against an evil if we're dealing with evil and what could be more evil than the destruction of little lives um, if we're dealing with evil, then it's got to be the church of Jesus Christ with the power of the Holy Spirit to stand against it, right? And so um, I please do in the next few days go out and then pass it on and pass it on and pass it on. And uh, let's see what God can do. Amen. Now, just quickly, I have, a, I have a little bit of a special opportunity for us. Paul writes in, uh, to Timothy, young Timothy, he says, now, first of all, he, he tells young Timothy that This is the way that I want you to conduct yourself. He says, first of all, I command that there be intercessions and prayers and thanksgivings for all people, and especially for those who are in authority, those who lead and those who rule and those who oversee, to pray for our leaders. And so we actually have this morning with us uh, two congressmen, Congressman Brian Mast, who serves down in Florida, where Sean and I are from. I think he represents the 21st district now. And then uh, Congressman Chuck Fleischman here representing district number three here in our community. But I, I, they're both with us today. They're gathering together on a couple things. I had dinner with uh, Brian last night. Brian happens to be my brother-in-law. I'm married. He and his beautiful wife and all the kids, all four, three of them are with us now. One's off in the, in the children's ministry. But um, would you uh, welcome them quickly? And then we're going to pray a blessing over these uh, men who lead us. Would you uh, welcome these two fellas? Great to see you. Great to see you. Great to have, your priv- to have the privilege to be with you guys. Uh, I-, I know this, that leadership is always required, right? You got, you've, leadership is essential, but sometimes, and you've heard me say this, uh, it's critical. And we're in a place, folks, you know that we talk about it a lot here, that uh, leadership today, leadership right now, is, um, it, it's essential. We, we've got to have men of conviction, men of courage, men that will do the right thing no matter what, men that can uh, you know, push against uh, 
the, uh, you know, the easy path and uh, do what's just flat right. And uh, so I want to pray for these men who lead and that they would lead well with courage, with strength, with conviction, and um, that we, the people, would be better off because of their representative leadership of uh, us. So um, would you be willing to just stand in God's presence with me and we'll lift up these brothers and ask for uh, power and strength upon them. Father in heaven, I want to thank you that uh, when, I, when we come before you, we come before the one who made us. You, you, you saw all of our days, your word says, before any of them ever were, they, there was, you penned a story for each of our lives. You, you penned a story for Congressman Mass and Congressman Fleischman, which included this particular moment, which included all that happens, has happened in their lives to bring them to this moment. You know what they're going to face. You know what it is that they're, they're going to be called upon to do as it relates to leading, um, standing for what they stand for, believing what they believe, and then leading in a way that um, really, it, well, the, Paul, the passage that you, you gave to young Timothy was that if, if these men would lead well, then we could live quiet and peaceable lives. And for most conservative people, none of us really, we don't desire activism we just want to live quiet and peaceable lives, maybe create some wealth, raise some families. But we're in a different kind of day. So I pray for these men that you protect them because there is an adversary that hates righteousness and right thinking and right ideas, good ideas, God, godly ideas. And that there would be an infu you would just infuse them with the deep conviction to no matter what. And we know that. You know, the old saying is true. I think it's Lord Acton. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Protect them from that dark influence. And may they be the kind of men that will use their influence uh, for, for your purposes, your higher purposes, for, for the good of everyone that they represent. So we thank you for them. We thank you for their sacrifice, for their commitment, for their service. Protect their families. Lord, I, I know Brian's family personally. Love them to just so much. Would you protect them? Would you bless them? Would uh, everything that they set their heart, their mind, their hands to prosper as they align with your will? Um, thank you for the privilege to do what your word commands us to do. And pray for those in authority. What a gift. Bless these men. We're grateful for them. And all God's people say, Amen. amen, amen. Thank you. God bless you guys. God bless you. Okay, so uh, the title of this message is There's No Peacocks in Heaven. All right? And we're learning about love, what it is and what it isn't. And we've discovered so far that love is two things. This is uh, our fifth message in this Summer of Love series where we're studying the, the world-famous passage, 1 Corinthians 13, and, and we've learned two things that love is. Additionally, we know at least one thing that love is not. So just for a quick quiz, we know that love is what? And love is kind. We know that, two things. And last week or two weeks ago, we learned that love, there's one thing that love isn't. Love doesn't what? Fantastic. You guys all get a smiley face in heaven. So love is patient. Remember, sort of prodigal father stays on the front porch, does not delight itself in evil, but rejoices in the truth. You know, will throw a lavish party when the prodigal comes home. Love is patient. Love is kind. Remember, kindness, it searches, it seeks, it looks for an opportunity to do good. And then love is not envious, meaning we learned this two weeks ago that while kindness is constantly looking for an opportunity to do something good, envy looks around a lot too. But envy is constantly roaming for its own self-interest. Remember, envy has a love affair like our current culture does with fair. And uh, equity, this new sort of buzzword, is nothing more than envy in sheep's clothing. The discerning can see this. So now we sort of dip into a section in this famous love talk where Paul has to inform his audience. 
an audience who needed to hear what it is that he had to say, the context of the world's greatest talk on love was the Corinthians' behavior. We, we, we haven't, we're not going to delve into the finer points, as I've said before, but the net of why Paul wrote was because the Corinthians, whatever they were doing, it was not loving at all. And so he's like, whoa, 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 wait a second. And in that case, it was the exercise of spiritual gifts. And so we end up where Paul pauses. Paul was the kind of pastor who'd tell the truth even if it risked offending someone. Imagine that. And at the risk of offending some, Paul, to tell the truth, you may offend somebody, but at the risk of offending some, those with ears to hear, many, many, many more would be edified. They'd be built up. They'd be strengthened. So he would risk the some for the sake of the more, for the whole. By the way, folks, (laughs) just don't forget, one of the most loving things we could ever do for another person is just to tell them the truth, right? Right? Just tell them the truth. When you're at dinner and there's spinach in your buddy's teeth, don't let them go the rest of the day, right? You know, love will say, you should sort that out for your own sake. I mean, I'm not judging you. I'm just saying that's not going to be good the rest of the day. Love will tell the truth. So what else is love not? Well, if you have the New King James Version, we're, we're in verse 4, 1 Corinthians 13, but it's taken five weeks to get there. We learn this, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. The old Living Bible says, is never boastful or proud. The old ASV says, it vaunteth not. It vaunts not. When's the last time you heard that word? Other newer translations have it, will not brag, is not arrogant, is not conceited. The idea is clear in a word, love is not proud, meaning a posture of condescension, a a posture of self-importance and conceit is not a loving posture position. Now, no doubt the vast majority of you have heard of reading this great passage on love and inserting your name everywhere that the word love is mentioned. So let's just try it for a second. No one throw up, please. Frank is patient, and Frank is kind, and Frank does not envy and will not parade himself. Or p- so for the sake of you all we'll, and me, we'll stop here. But when you put Christ there, Jesus is patient, and Jesus is kind, and Jesus does not envy. And he, Christ, none other than God the Almighty in the flesh, is not boastful or arrogant or conceited. He, he never paraded himself, never, never puffed himself up it sounds well it's just perfectly true and perhaps the cleanest proof text uh, for this is found in Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 2 we're going to read a few verses together so if you're there we're going to start in verse 1 and I just want to highlight one thing it has always been one of the most profound lines to me about Jesus and his humility and then we're going to let him teach us the master of all Another love ain't attribute. Philippians 2, Paul writes this. And by the way, I'm going to read in the the NIV for a moment because there's a section in the New King James. It's a little little complicated. This is in the NIV. It's clear. And then we'll come back and unpack this one line. Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if there's any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then... Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. He writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And here's the bit in the NIV that is far clearer than, well, it's a little, it's difficult to understand, I think, in the New King James. Have the same mindset of Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he, Christ, made himself nothing. 
by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, three powerful words, he, Christ, humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, there's no higher place, because none ever went lower, and gave him the name that is above every name. Now, when we read in the New King James that our attitude should be the same as Jesus, and that though he was God, he never, he never used his equality with God as an opportunity for his own personal gain, it says, but he made himself nothing. Now, the New King James says this, he made himself, ready, of no reputation, not little reputation or mild reputation or a tender reputation. He made Christ Jesus, who literally co-creator of every single one of us in this room and everything that is, he made himself of no reputation at all. Now, tell me, church, if you don't find that to be anything other than spectacularly counter Cultural. Honestly, this is one of the things among many that uh, concerns me about most social media. Is it not in the end essentially the exact opposite of the posture of Jesus who made himself of no reputation? I mean, he being God literally went out of his way to, as it were, veil his glory. Now, of course, not all of it. But the vast majority of social media is nothing less than what? What is it? Making your, like, look at me. I'm not going to veil my glory. I want you to see my glory. I want you to follow my glory. I want you to like my glory. So love is not proud. It's not conceited. It's not puffed up. It won't brag, hey, look at me. Now, Jesus Christ, mind you, the greatest man to ever grace the planet, being its creator, lived lowly like this, making himself of no reputation. And he is love. And love is not proud. It doesn't puff itself up. It doesn't, to puff yourself up means to sort of put yourself, that's why I say there are no peacocks in heaven. I watched a video this morning of a peacock. Okay, I just figured, let's just get fresh on this thing. Because I I grew up, right, I grew up on Sundays after church in Orlando. You could drive through this place called Peacock Park. It's fascinating. Go real slow. And, and of course, you wanted to see the peacock do the thing, right? You, you didn't go there to see them with all their stuff tucked in. But every now and then, one blessed Sunday, <laughs> you know, and it'll, it'll do the deal, it'll start to do the deal. And when it's tracking, like when, it, when it's got its eye on one little girl, it'll, he, can, he, can turn, he can turn the deal. You know, it's unbelievable. And the whole idea is like, look at me. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. That's what love is not, you see. <laughs> so there are no peacocks in heaven. So now Christ Jesus He's, listen, he modeled this better than any man ever could because he was actually something and made himself nothing. We're nothing, and we spend a lot of time to make ourselves something. So now we're going we're gonna to listen to the master teach. Now, admittedly, some messages are harder for us to preach than others, right? Some just are. Some messages are painful to preach because we just haven't, we just haven't lived up to whatever it is, whatever the topic is, whatever the character, whatever the attribute is. For Jesus, every message was easy. Meaning, everything that he taught, he wasn't like, you know, theoretically, this would be a good way to live. Everything that he taught, he abs it came out of the wellspring of like, and this is the way that I live my life. Supernaturally, that this is who I am. So, and you're called to be like me. So, Luke chapter 14, this is a fascinating story. And we've got another what love ain't attribute. Verse 1, chapter 14 of Luke. Now it happened as he went into the house of one, it's Jesus, as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. Now, initially I planned on jumping straight to the part in this story where Jesus addresses both pride and humility 
because love is not proud. But then I realized as I slowed down a little bit that the whole context of this event that he is at is useful for the whole lesson. And so we just read that Jesus went into the house of New King James, one of the rulers of the Pharisees. You can read one of the rulers of the Pharisees. I, I like the NIV. It captures it a little bit better. One Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. The idea is that he's now at, he's been invited not to anybody, he's at somebody's house. And we're going to see Christ not only see something, in fact he sees a lot that others don't, he not only sees something but he'll pause and he'll address it. So he's at the house of someone prominent, somebody who's somebody, and they're watching him closely but they're unaware, as many of us are often, that he's watching them too. And behold, verse 2, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So while being watched intently, there happens to be a man there among them. Uh, and he has this condition called dropsy. It's not that he's clumsy. You know, the poor guy keeps spilling his milk. You know, he's got a sad case of the fumbles. He's not clumsy. He's sick. He's quite sick. In fact, in, we're told that dropsy would sort of present itself in um, grotesque swelling of your extremities. Your face would swell. Your arms and your legs would swell. And so the guy is there, we believe, and on a Sabbath almost like a piece of bait. So here you have this, you know, some, everyone who's somebody event, and then like the Michelin man. You know what I'm saying? I, I, know, I mean that, no disrespect to him. But here he is suffering. Now, the Pharisees, right, these are the re Jewish religious leaders of the day. They are still largely in the dark about who Christ Jesus is. However, there is something, I think, by observation now that they knew, and they knew quite strongly, and that's this. Jesus could hardly resist the suffering of another human being. I mean, they think they, think they got him. Like, we don't know who he is, but the guy seems to demonstrate a profound compassion for people who suffer, and we'll, we'll trap him on a Sabbath and see if he can't restrain himself now, it's been wisely said, I, I, I've, I heard this many, many years ago, and I find it to be true by observation, but there are essentially two kinds of people in this world. There are those who walk into a room and say, here I am. And you're going to find out in a moment that this room that Jesus is in is brimming with those kinds of people. And then there is the kind of person who walks into a room and says, there you are. And notice, Jesus sees this man. It's as if Christ entered the room. Everybody else is, you're going to find out, we're going to find out what they're doing. But he enters the room and he sees someone who has a need. There you are. Well, the issue to them is, can't, listen, the Sabbath is clear. You, there's a lot of things you can't do on the Sabbath. So they're thinking, can't heal on the Sabbath. And notice the way that the passage reads. Then Jesus answering them. But they didn't ask him any audible question. This was all, this whole trap, the poor suffering man in the group on the Sabbath, they're, all, they're asking a question, but no one audibly says, hey. So he asks them a question. He answered their so-called trap with a question. We call this, folks, spiritually speaking, a word of wisdom. We, we believe in those today, words of wisdom, words of knowledge. A word of wisdom is it, it's a divine piece of intel that in the middle of, in the middle of a something contentious, and though no one's thrown any fist punches yet, this is a contentious environment because these people don't like him. When a word of wisdom comes, God will sometimes give us a word of wisdom in the middle of a contention, and when, when the wisdom drops, it's, it, 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 it leaves, the, it's over. So notice, he asks them a question. He asks them a question that they know they want the answer to. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Word of wisdom. 
Simple question, but it's divine from heaven. Notice, they kept silent. It's, it's, essentially, it's game over. Uh, mm. And so he takes the man and heals him and lets him go. Now, the healing in that condition, you know the healing was visibly, it was physically evident. Like, folks, I wouldn't imagine people, you know, <gasps> and he sets the man free. And this healing happens all within their silence. And then another question. <laughs> when people who think they're somebody find themselves in the presence of someone who's really somebody, and the someone who's really someone starts asking the people who think they're somebody questions on top of questions, it's a bad day. This is a bad day for the somebodies in the room. When Jesus asks you a question and leaves you speechless and then follows it up with another question and leaves you speechless, you're getting cooked. Well, then he answered them saying, which of you having a donkey? <laughs> I just healed a man. Which of you having a donkey or an ox that's fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath? Now they're looking on and they're going, they're looking at one another like, Eddie, you did that last week. You know, we, I helped you. Your, your thing was in the hole and you called me and I came over and we pulled the thing out of the... So he kind of appeals to some basic sense of decency within them. Okay, it's not a man, but what about a donkey? And they, all, they answer, not a word regarding these things. We often think of Jesus, the great miracle worker. He's the one who loosens dumb tongues, right? But he's also the man with just a word he can silence. I've got a proverb that I like. It's called tongues that wag and those that won't. The Lord has made them both. It's mine. It's my proverb. The Lord, don't quote it. Comes from the Old Testament, eyes that see. Those that see, eyes that see and those that don't. The Lord And ears to hear, the Lord has made them both. Tongues that wag and those that won't, the Lord has made them both. So then he turns, so now I, we set that all up, and then he turns to the greater audience. He's at the party. This is not a wedding feast. We're going to see he's going to change the context in a second. So he's had his interaction with these guys, but then he turns to everyone. So he told a parable to those who are invited. Notice, when he noted how they chose the best places saying to them. So Christ is invited to be censored. He's invited to be trapped. He's invited to be watched. But they'd no idea that uh, he had watched them ever so closely. They were all taking notes. He took note too. Seems everyone present at this somebody event, and there are some who's, you know, somebody events today, of course, but they all did this thing that he observed Naturally. So now he's going to publicly address everyone and he tactfully switches the context so that, so, that it, so that not to be painfully obvious. You know what I'm saying? So they're at a party, but it's not a wedding feast. And he's going to say something to everybody. And instead of just coming right out and going, you guys are pathetic. I sat back. I watched this entire event. All of you jockey around like a bunch of peacocks. Your feathers are all tangled up with one another. This is ridiculous. He doesn't do that. He changes the context so that they might start to think. And by the way, church, listen to me. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, loves to see his people think things through for themselves. Something that we are going to have to grow in an increasing measure. We're going to have to learn to think for ourselves. So here he goes. Here's the parable to the whole party. When you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, they're like, oh, yeah, that's right. To, to, okay, good. This, this is interesting. Well, let's think this through. Do not sit down in the best place. Lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. So he changes the event. But he adds, if you're invited by anyone, not when you're invited by somebody who's somebody, but when you're invited by anyone to the wedding feast, like let this attitude that I'm going to teach you about be your behavior on every occasion, not just when the somebodies invite you, but when anyone invites you, do not sit in the best place. Now, 
We don't exactly have this in our culture to the very same way. In that culture, the seating was sort of honor ordered from sort of ascending to descending, you know, uh, uh, order. And so the closest to the head of the event, the, 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 uh, the premier of the event, had the highest honor. And then it descended from there. So he says, don't with chest out because love doesn't parade itself or puff itself up. Take the best seat. Don't parade yourself puffily and publicly take the best seat, thinking of or to yourself, essentially, when you walk in, well, surely that's my seat. I'm here. I'm here, everyone. That's got to be my seat. He says, what if someone with more honor than you invited, but they're not there yet? Verse 9. And he who invited you, and him, the one who has more honor, come and say to you, give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take, not the next seat over, but the lowest place. The NIV says, then humiliated in front of them all. Everyone's looking at you precisely because you feel that they should. You made them look at you. You put yourself in front of them at the head of the table. You wanted them to see you. So they will see you and they're going to see you in that awkward moment when that thing happens. That terrible thing happens. You've walked in. Out come the feathers. The table is 150 yards long. You walk by everyone. I don't know if it's you, your wife, both of you. There's, there's feathers everywhere. 150 yards to the head of the table. Jesus says, if someone else with more honor comes, there's going to be that thing that happens. You know when you're sitting there and you finally put your feathers back? Someone's going to come over, and everyone's watching you because you wanted them to, and they're going to whisper in your ear, hey, um, you got And you're going to go, they're all going to, everyone's going to be able to figure it out. You're going to go like, oh, the next seat. And he's going to go, no, no, not, not that seat. You go, oh, like two seats over. No, not, not two seats over. And then he hands you a pair of binoculars. <laughs> like, your seat. So now there's no longer any beautiful green or chartreuse or blue and purple. It's all what? Red. You, it is the red-faced walk of shame. Your wife's fingers are in your arm or vice versa. I don't know who got you to that place, you know. I don't know how it works. But and you're going, oh. And Jesus like, now listen, nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. So here's what you should do instead. But when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. And then I, I love this line. Then you will have glory in the presence of those, all those who sit at the table with you. How great. Nobody was looking at you when you walked in. You like it that way. Actually, you wanted it that way. You were glad to sit you know, uh, in the, in the uh, cheap seats, you know, in the shadows. For you, it's the most comfortable seat in the house. But then what you didn't choose chooses you. Well, what didn't I choose? You did not choose honor for yourself, but because you did not choose honor for yourself, honor chose you. And the friend comes over and goes, hey, you should get up and go. Friend, come up and go higher. And then you're going to have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table. Look at it. With you. Notice, you arrived as a guest. You went low. Actually chose the lowest seat and gladly. Now check it out. Jesus says you'll have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. Like the whole table is yours now. You chose the lowest seat and God gave you the whole table. It wasn't your party. You were just invited. But you came in low, lowly. 
And you said, baby, let's sit here. You sit there. And then the guy says, and now you're going to have glory in the presence of everyone who sits at the table with you as if it is now your table. Like they are now honored to be at your table. Be like, I just came here to be, I was just a guest at the table. The Lord's like, no, if you'll choose to go low, I'll actually make it your table. See, see how it goes with God? See how it goes with humility? Those who will make themselves of no reputation, God will make sure that they have one, a good one, an exalted one, a blessed one, an integral one. And here now, okay, so all of that, everybody, everybody's leaned in. It is, you know, and now for the divine, now for the heavenly, now for the, um, here comes the, the supernatural tagline. The heavenly truth Here's at work here on earth for whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. It is an eternal law getting an amen from the front row. I love it. From the lips of babes. An eternal law as universal as gravity. Who, listen, listen to this, y'all. Whoever does this, and this doesn't, this doesn't apply to, to those that are faith people, those who are followers of Christ. You, you may be here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. You can take this Bible wisdom with you for the rest of your life. This will serve you well. You don't have to become a follower to apply this wisdom. This, is just, this will spare you a lot of red-faced uh, situations. But notice what he says. This is universal. Whoever does this thing where one exalts himself, where one parades and puffs out the chest, where one with conceit is moved to sort of posture himself or herself, where all eyes must be on them, where one brags openly, where one draws attention to himself. Christ said two terrifying words to the person who will do that. He says two words. Will be. Not could be or is likely to be, but will be humbled, will be humiliated. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but I think that's a kind warning, isn't it? That is a kind warning indeed from Christ. Well, the kind blessing then is equally universal, but whoever, again, whoever, irrespective, irregardless, whoever, he who humbles himself, he who refrains from the best seat, who holds his tongue about himself or herself, he who we could say deflates self, keeps the, keeps the feathers down, he who will not brag or boast, he who will, like Jesus Christ, who is quite remarkable indeed, in fact, the greatest of all, and we in the end are ordinarily, we're extraordinarily ordinary, in truth, but if we will, like Jesus, make ourselves of no reputation, if we'll leave our PR to him, notice again, not might be, could be, or even should be, but will be. The one who will do this unnatural thing, and it is unnatural to live this way and to, to function this way, will experience, without question, it is a law, this unparalleled blessing. He will be exalted. She will be Lift it up. So what can we take away from this wonderful evening from Christ? Three quick things. Number one, number one, real love, that's what we're learning about, makes less of self and more of others. And real love makes less of self and more than others. One of the things that stood out to me in a fresh way in this dinner party that Jesus was invited to was that he, it seems, and he alone, he seemed to see things that others did not. First, he saw a man that the others did not. But then secondly, he was able to see the context of how this was going in a way that they didn't. And so, meaning that not only is our self-interest and our self-preoccupation and our selfishness not loving or like Jesus, listen, it causes us to miss a great many opportunities that are right in front of our faces. You see that? It appears that everyone who came to the party, 
showed up with the peacock mentality of where can I find the best seat? Where can I find the best seat? Where can I find the best seat? Where are people going to get the best glimpse of me? And the only one who showed up with that attitude of like, oh, there you are, was Christ Jesus. He was the one who saw the one man that had the need. So when we, when we parade ourselves, which love will not do, and we, we, pu- we, we go puffy, we miss the needs of others. And love certainly cares for the needs of others, okay? Number one. Number two, and this is heavy, and I'm, I'm wrestling a little bit with the back end, but number two, God, this is heavy. This by itself is heavy. Listen, God only humbles those who make him humble them. God only humbles those who make him humble them. It, it, I don't know, contrary to maybe popular opinion, but if your idea of God is that he's on some egocentric crusade to humble men, to bring men low. You've got it all wrong. It's not as if God wakes up in the morning and he's like, give me some human that I can humble. No, no, he doesn't have to go looking because we provide him with ample opportunity all by ourselves, right? I mean, right, all he has to do is look around and go, oh, sure, there they go, there they are again. I guess. So if you've ever been humbled by God, it wasn't because he was chasing you down to do it. You made him. That's heavy. Now, <laughs> if verse 11, verse 11 says, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. If, if I can say rightly from the parable that God only humbles the man who makes him humble him, then I might add sort of as a counter truth God only exalts those who make him exalt them. Now let me just, I'm, I'm, I'm working through this a little bit because I think there are times biblically where God will exalt a man who in a sense has not made God exalt him. On the one hand, I think of King Saul who was sort of a victim of the people's choice. Remember the people had been ruled for 80 years under Samuel and they were no standing army, no government. It was it ruled by the people for the people. It was, everything was great, but... The people looked around and saw the other nations around them and said, you know, we want a king like everybody else. And they begged him. They begged, they begged, please, please, like everybody else. Well, they got Saul. And Saul is a tragic lesson of God saying, if this is what you want, I'll give it to you. It ain't going to be that good. But listen, into Saul's defense, you remember Saul was head and shoulders above the rest. He had hair like my son. If you've seen my son... Brilliant. Later, his head, he's got so much hair, he get, Saul gets stuck in a tree. You know, it's classic. He's stuck in a tree. And if, anyhow, anyhow. Uh, when Samuel was trying to anoint Saul, where was he? He was hiding in the armor. He was, he's like, he, and, and God later says, you know, when you were little in your own eyes, everything was good. But then at some point, you no longer were little in your own eyes, and now it's gone bad. We know that as it relates to King David, that is, maybe there was some humility in Saul. Even though God gave, God exalted him, maybe there was humility there in the first place. Then you think about King David. Clearly, King David was a humble young man, and God exalted him because of his humility, among other things. But let's just think of Jesus for a second. Going back to Philippians 2, Jesus Christ he didn't choose the lowest seat. He chose the grave, became obedient even to death on a cross. And what did God give him? He chose the grave and God gave him glory. Christ, who was somebody, kind of like a big deal, right? Spoke this world into existence, co-creator with God the Father, sinless, perfect. He came. He was something. If any man could have walked in a room and blew some feathers out, it would have been Jesus. You should know me. In fact, you should bow down and worship me. He never did that. He walked in, took a towel, got on his knees, and began to wipe disciples' feet. But he didn't. And so because he was that high, he was infinitely high, but went 
infinitely low, all the way to the death of a cross. He chose a grave, not the lowest seat. God exalted him and gave him glory, and his name is above every other name, and he's, he's higher than any other name, right? Well, in the passage, this mythical parable, not mythical, but the parable that teaches the, the one who came in the second time was the one who chose the lowest seat. He chose the lowest seat. God gave him the whole table. No one has ever come from a higher place than Christ and gone lower. That's why he's higher than anyone else. It seems to work this way, folks. To the degree that we will choose to go low, to that same degree, God will exalt us. So if you want like a little exaltation, go a little low. I should have titled the message, How Low Can You Go? You know what I mean? Shorty got low, low, low. Anyway, she was exalted, that girl. I don't know. She, she got low. You know what I'm saying? Anyhow. <laughs> you never know what you're going to get here, folks. It's a little theology, a little pop culture. My, got some leaders in the community and the, in the nation here with us. You never know what you're going to get at Calvary Chapel. All right, number three. Humility without which we cannot be loving is an act of the will. It's something that we choose, so choose humility. Now, there is something I submit that is true. It's called false humility. And false humility, like any false thing, can have an appearance. Like, it can look good on the outside, but nobody's fooling God, and you're never fooling yourself. And so, church, <laughs> why we do what we do is, is critical to understand. Why you do why you and I do what we do, why you and I do not do what we do, that is, we must understand this. So let me define humility then for a second because it's important to, 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 the, to the whole of the, the message here. Humility then is simply seeing ourselves accurately. Humility is simply seeing ourselves accurately and then acting and living accordingly. Does that make sense? Humility is just, so, so when we walk into a situation or we walk into the, to the gathering and we feel as if, you know, we, 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 we jockey, we position, we, we, we function in such a way that you must see me, you must hear me, you must, right? That just simply means that we do not see ourselves rightly before God or other men. Paul said in Philippians 2, let this mind, let this attitude be in you, the same attitude which was in Christ Jesus. So it is an action. Humility is something that we choose to do. It's a volitional act of the will. You can practice humility. And I submit to you that if we will practice going low, God will see to it that we are in fact truly rightly exalted, rightly lifted up, Rightly, but listen, here's, here's the heavy part. I'm convinced that it takes true humility to handle true exaltation. It, it, you are not going to handle being up here if you cannot handle being down here. You see? And so folks, critically we're learning what love is and what it isn't. And we are in a profoundly confused age, a foggy age, both out there and in here. And so we slow down a little bit. We unpack what love is. Notice we, we're five weeks in now. We haven't said anything about how love feels. We haven't. And I'm not submitting that we aren't emotional creatures at all. We are made in the image of God. He, he wept. He gets angry. But it's just good to back up and go, in this age where something is said to be loving, when you go, hmm, or something is said to be angry, and you go, well, that seemed, it's just good for us to slow down a little bit and go, what really is love and what is it not? Amen? Father, we love you and we do need you. Uh, this isn't natural. This is supernatural. Nobody functions like this ordinarily. They function this way. Extraordinarily, it's, it's an extraordinary thing when men, fallen, prone to desire the 
praise and the approval and the applause of other men. We recognize that we really aren't made for that. It's not healthy for us. Flesh is not really up to the task of basking in praises of other men. That's why your word says that the fear of man, caring too much what men think, is a trap. So would you help us to function well wisely? This is just straight wisdom. Could we live in such a way that we'll review ourselves? Like, could we live out of the accurate assessment of who we really are? Fact is, Lord, we shouldn't even be invited to the party. Ever. At all. That's just the truth. We deserve mm -hmm, so much less than that. But if we could see ourselves rightly, then we'll function more in accordance to, well, the way you lived. We want to be like you. This is a very rare message indeed in our day. But it is necessary. It's needed. So would you have mercy on us? We say, Lord, that from you and through you and to you are all things. All that we've got has come from you. And so as we sing it out and close this morning, could you, could you help us set the dial of our hearts away from self and toward others, away from sort of haughty self-exaltation to humble, even self-deflection, and to trust by faith that exaltation comes neither from the east or the west, but from the Lord. And all God's people say, amen. Hey, let's stand together and we'll close. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Frank Ramsour. If you enjoy the message, you can learn more about Pastor Frank's ministry by visiting calvarychat.com. That's calvary, C-H-A-T-T dot -T com.